but there was something about this community that attracted me to it, and it's, you know, it's the unique Missoula-ness, and, you know, there's something about this place. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana College of Business. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. It is October and October is co-op month. What is a co-op? Well, I figured I'd go straight to the source and ask the leaders of three important co-ops in Western Montana. Today, I'm joined by Jack Lawson of Clearwater Credit Union, Jason Williams of Blackfoot, and Mark Hayden of Missoula Electric Co-op. They help us understand how co-ops are different from other types of businesses and explain how their ownership and governance structures enable an especially deep commitment to this community. It was great to learn more about these organizations and what they do to propel Western Montana and beyond. So let's get into it right now. All right, so we're here today with Jack Lawson, President and CEO of Clearwater Credit Union, Jason Williams, CEO of Blackfoot, and Mark Hayden, General Manager of Missoula Electric Co-op. Fellas, thanks for coming on the podcast. Jack, let's start with you. Um, tell us a little bit about your your role at um, at Clearwater. Yeah, sure thing. Uh, we are a credit union, Montana's second largest credit union. That basically means that we are a savings and loan cooperative or a cooperatively owned banking institution. We mobilize savings, help people kind of manage their spend and transform savings into loans. Um, So my job is to essentially serve our 52,000 member owners uh, with ethical, responsible financial services. And I do that by, by reporting to a board of directors that the members elect uh, and by managing a team of pretty great coworkers, we're about 160 total people working um, and manage roughly almost a billion dollars in total community assets. Wow. Well, we'll talk about all the great things you and your team do in the community. Um, let's kick it to, to Jason right now. You know, we've had you on the podcast, but it's been a number of years. Full disclosure: Blackfoot is one of the co-presenting sponsors of this podcast, so we're thankful. For, for your organization for, for, for many reasons. But Jason, give us a little bit of, of an overview. I don't think many people sort of know the, the full history of, of Blackfoot. You bet, Justin. Thanks. And it's great to be here. Thanks for, for hosting us. So Blackfoot Communications, we've been around for about 65 years, and we started by providing basic phone service out into the rural areas all around Missoula. Uh, starting primarily up the Blackfoot River Valley, and that's where we've gotten our name. Uh, as the telecom industry has changed and morphed over the last several decades, uh, we are now Montana's largest um, independent broadband provider, and um, we were actually provide services to some of Montana's largest businesses and uh, some of the country's largest businesses. If you were to take a list of the 100 largest businesses in the state of Montana, Blackfoot provides some sort of service to those companies 
uh, about two thirds of them, uh, and some of whom have branch locations in more than a dozen states. So pretty comprehensive, and, and we've really evolved as technology has evolved too. And we've got uh, different operating business units and subsidiaries, including a software subsidiary. But the ultimate parent company of Blackfoot remains Blackfoot Telephone Cooperative. Mm -hmm. and, and that cooperative, similar to what Jack indicated, is elected by the member owners of Blackfoot. And my nine bosses are um, uh, on my board. My board of trustees are also Blackfoot customers. Fantastic. Mark, fill us in on Missoula Electric Co-op. Tell us about you guys. Uh, thank you very much. And yes, uh, I echo what Jason said. Thanks for having us on. You know, October is co-op month and that's right around the corner. So uh, um, thanks again. So Missoula Electric Co-op, we have 12,500 members, roughly 15,000 meters in and around Missoula. So so when you think of Missoula Electric, we generally serve the rural areas um, in western Montana, eastern Idaho. Uh, we're all requirements contract holders with the Bonneville Power Administration. So our members benefit from, you know, that clean renewable hydropower that comes out of the Columbia River Basin. Roughly 85 or 95% of that power is carbon free each and every day. So we are pretty fortunate to have that. Uh, 40 just over 40 employees serve our members out of uh, our headquarters here in Missoula and an outpost in Sealy Lake. So um, thanks again for having us and, and look forward to talking a little bit more about co-ops on your show here. Yeah. So Mark, as you mentioned, this is co-op month. The theme of co-op month this year is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I know all three of your organizations value those things greatly. Jack, let's start with you because you've supported a lot of these um, diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives uh, at the University of Montana, particularly the Sea Change um, Initiative. Um, before we get into some of that, though, let's talk about co-ops themselves. How are they different um, than a standard? Well, when people think of a business, um, they might think of a corporation, they might think of a sole proprietorship. How is a co-op different? The, the thing to remember is that there are lots of different types of co-ops. You've got, okay. you know, three here. Um, credit unions are one type, utilities another type. There's lots of different agricultural cooperatives. What we all share in common um, is that uh, we are owned by users of our products and services. We're not owned by outside investors who have placed an equity investment and are looking to extract some financial return from the business or the corporation. In our case, we're owned by 52,000 members who are looking for the ethical, responsible delivery of saving accounts, checking accounts, loan products and services. And so our incentive uh, is to do that as well as we can. Our incentive is not to maximize profits. I think that's the biggest structural difference between a cooperative and a non-cooperative entity. We're user-owned, democratic and controlled by our member owners, our users, and we try to distribute benefits ethically. And so how, when you talk about distributing the benefits equity, the benefits go in general in business, the benefits go to the owners. The owners could be, as you mentioned, the members, the employees. Um, Jason, talk a little bit about the structure of, of your co-op. How, how does it how does it operate? 
Yeah, so Blackfoot, um, the, the co-op part of our business, which again, that, that's largely our consumer business out in the, the, the rural communities around Missoula. Um, but if you buy voice and broadband services from Blackfoot, you become a member of the cooperative. And ultimately what happens is once we pay our, all of our bills and we gather all of our revenue, any sort of profits that are left over, as Jack indicated, we're not paying them out to, to third-party shareholders. Instead, what we're doing is any profits we make, um, we, we sort of present that before our, um, our owners in the form of our board of trustees and say, hey, what would you like us to do with these profits? And in a business like Blackfoot, uh, you know, the broadband business is intensely, uh, uh, there's lots of capital demands right now is, is really uh, with the advent of the, the pandemic as well, the, the COVID pandemic, shined a light on the need for high-speed, reliable connectivity. Um, so a lot, uh, we, we were really focusing on reinvesting most of our profits back into our network right now to ensure the long-term viability of, of our cooperative. Um, I also mentioned we have some, some, uh, some non-co-op business units as well. So I mentioned we provide connectivity and networking to some of Montana's largest businesses. To the extent that that, that business unit or our other business units are generating a profit, that money gets uh, kind of distributed up to the cooperative as well uh, for, for cooperative activities, which again, right now are largely um, uh, geared toward investing and upgrading our network to put more fiber optics into the ground. So, so that's sort of um, how, how we're set up and, and what we're doing at a high level. Okay. So Mark, you know, tell us about, um, you know, how the co-op construct functions for you. I mean, most people think of uh, the electric company as, as, a, as, a, as a utility. Describe your structure and how it allows you to create value for your, for your members and your, your customers. Sure. So, um, you know, Missoula Electric's been in, in place since 1936. We were formed by farmers and ranchers who, um, you know, there are a variety of reasons why co-ops exist, right? Some, some are, you know, to increase bargaining power. Um, um, some are to uh, reduce cost of, of production. But, but for Missoula Electric Co-op, it was to obtain products and services that, that they otherwise couldn't get in rural uh, Missoula County, and and that was that was the power to run, uh, to pump water and, and to to run those uh, that equipment on the on the farm or the ranch. Mm-hmm. So, you know, over time, that that uh, hopefully that that dedication to to our original purpose remains, and and that's this local connection that that I think our board of directors, our governance structure, really really highlights, and and. This year, we to to Jason's point with COVID, you know, we we try to be responsive to the needs of our community. Um, this year, we returned one point five million dollars in patronage capital, the most in the history of of the co-op in any one given year, and that was that was to offset any impacts that COVID might have had to our members. Um, these board members, they live, they work in the communities that we serve, and I think that is such a valuable, um, you know impact that they have on on the co-op a great example of that i was i was traveling up the highway uh two weeks ago and uh came across a fire in the potomac valley when the smoke cleared um 
one of the first responders, the fire um, crew that, that showed up on the scene was one of Jason's board members from Blackfoot. And how cool was that? Mm -hmm. These people live and work and serve those communities, um, whether on the board or, or off. So um, that's a real connection to, to rural um, Missoula and, and to the communities that we serve here. So Jack, let me ask you this question. You've sort of worked in co-ops, um, well, in, in credit unions in particular for a, a long time, a number of credit union stints. I mean, you must feel strongly about this model and how it can create values for, for members in, in ways that are distinct from other sorts of financial institutions. Talk about your commitment to the credit union model. Yeah, I I don't know if I'd work in financial services if I weren't working in a cooperative uh, model. The, the, the sense of social purpose um, and ability to think creatively with business discipline, but with social, environmental, economic impact in mind is really special uh, and pretty unique, I think, uh, within the financial services industry to credit unions. Um, so for me, uh, that sense of purpose has been really, really uh, critical. And um, you're right, I have been lucky to work not just for this fantastic credit union here in Missoula, uh, but for a, a pretty great national community development credit union called Self Help. And back when I got started in this line of work for a really cool startup that I was actually the founder of called Brooklyn Cooperative, which served uh, a primarily Spanish-speaking poor population in North Brooklyn. Uh, so it's a it's a it's a unique and really really exciting place to work. Uh, and, and, and again, I don't think I'd be doing it if it weren't for the cooperative structure and the ability to deliver impact in the way that we do. Yeah, can we talk about that? Draw that out just a little bit. I mean, we've had Scott Burke um, from First Security Bank uh, on the show, and he talked about you know how a community bank can make different decisions that a national bank can. Um, you must have sort of agility or license to, to make choices about your organization in ways that are different from, from banks. Um, it's not necessarily, a, a, you know, asking you to criticize banks, but, but what sort of um, opportunities for impact does, does your role in your organization allow you to, to go after? Yeah, no, you raise you raise a, a good point about the local banks too. We're lucky here in Montana. We're, it's a, it's a, a state that's full of some really great local community and regional banks, and we're we're not we're not bank bashers. Actually, we cooperate quite well with some of the local banks and bankers. Um, I think the best way to answer your question is to give you an example. Uh, you've probably all heard of overdraft fees. Um, overdraft fees are the thing uh, that the fee that a bank or credit union will charge a consumer when they swipe their debit card and they overdraft their account. Well, that happens to be. Um, a, a revenue line that has been growing incredibly quickly for banks and credit unions across the country. It's a punitive fee, um, and, it, and it's also a fee that's not really set to cover costs and deliver just a responsible profit margin. It's kind of a become a super profit center for banks and credit unions, frankly, across the country. Um, we took a good hard look at overdraft fees in our organization, and we, we found that uh, they weren't set to cover costs alone. They were actually extracting more margin than they needed to to cover costs and that a very small set of users uh, were using 
overdraft privileges so frequently that they were paying the, the lion's share of, of those fees. And we got quite uncomfortable with them. So in our structure, given our incentive structure and our cooperative ownership structure, we were able to think carefully about how to rebuild that entire program and have developed a pretty innovative alternative to overdraft fees, which is essentially what we call a now an overdraft sweep loan. And it, it, it does the same darn thing at less than 20% of the cost to consumer and about the same risk profile to us. And I just don't think we could have done that if we were answering to external shareholders who were looking to maximize profits and non-interest income. I think it's a great example of the kind of thinking we can bring to, to challenges like this. Yeah, that seems like a great example of, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a profit center with huge moral hazard and being able to sort of sort through that and, and think of your members uh, before you think of your shareholders. That Yeah, that, that's a very clear and telling example. Um, Jason, thinking of your career, I mean, you come from a, a, a legal background, uh, University of Montana Law School. Um, we talked about this in our previous podcast conversation Looking at kind of some of these these legal structures of how businesses operate, have you thought about that with regard to how a co-op like yours can 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 make different choices than a than a um, shareholder driven company would make um, for servicing folks in our region? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, you know, it is interesting. The one thing I don't know if we touched on in describing why why co-ops are different is this, the fundamental principle uh, of, of kind of democracy in that it's one member and one vote. So, so example, my, my very largest uh, consumer of Blackfoot services, uh, Blackfoot co-op services, you know, they pay us tens of thousands of dollars a month uh, for certain types of services. When it comes to making corporate decisions, uh, that, that, customer only gets one vote, just like the small, maybe, um, uh, you know, the person that has basic internet service that is, um, uh, you, you know, maybe the single parent or, or the elderly person that's just kind of moving along, their interest and their voice um, gets just as much representation as um, as the, the largest economic interest, at least at Blackfoot. So when we think about decision-making, it really is a, a, a holistic approach in that we, we, again, and we've stressed this in our conversation already, it's not all about profits and it's not all about financial motivation. We've got opportunities to think about what our, our communities really need. Uh, so I, I'll give an example of that. If you remember... I think it was three summers ago when the town of Sealy Lake, Montana, which is in the heart of our our cooperative service territory, was devastated by those wildfires. Right. There's a lot of wildfires in the news lately, but Sealy Lake, if you remember, got absolutely hammered up there. Mm-hmm. And um, and my board of trustees made the decision, you know, what can we do to help those folks out? And and we gave all of our customers living up there. Um, Credit, uh, credits on their bills. We gave, essentially gave everybody a month of free service because we were doing lots of other things, but we thought, you know, economically, what can we do? So, so, so we're able to 
to, to respond in that way. And again, larger customers got larger credits. Smaller customers got, got smaller credits based on what kind of the, their monthly service was. But it was a, a democratized decision. Everybody got a credit because we thought it was the right thing to do. Super. Mark, you, you know, you run an organization that's critical to infrastructure, you know, similar to Jason. Actually, all three of you are sort of um, critical infrastructure partners in our community, but, but Mark specifically with, with electricity and sort of the building boom that we're in right now. Um, how are you making choices to facilitate um, some of that growth? Yes. Uh, to your point, we are definitely seeing tremendous growth in and around Missoula. Um, the, the pace at which, at which we are seeing it is, is quite unprecedented. Last year was, was record growth in 2019. It's slowed down a bit this year, but, um, to your point, you know, we charge, um, what we charge for our services is cost. And, and that's another thing that hasn't been mentioned is we operate at cost, whether that is providing the electrons, uh, to the meter, or building the new service to the homes and businesses we serve. Um, that is never a profit-driven um, portion of our business. It's always done at cost. And and looking beyond the new infrastructure, you know, needed to serve homes and businesses. Um, one of the things that I I would point to is is how we have been responsive to our members over the last few years when it comes to locally sourced renewable energy. Um, our members, um, our board listens to our members. And when they said they wanted locally sourced renewable, we put in um, one of the first uh, solar arrays in Lolo, a ground mount system. We sold that system out within a couple of months. Um, once that was, was fully um, deployed, we also built a second array on the, on the roof of the Frenchtown Elementary School. Um, that sold out also in, in a matter of months. Um, that was the first partnership between a utility and a school in Montana, which was really cool. A New Angle is brought to you by First Security Bank and Blackfoot, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. Hey, this is Ryan Tutel and Coulter Nuanas from ESPN Missoula, and you're listening to A, a New, New Angle. Angle. We then moved on to uh, our third solar array on the rooftop of Kettle House Brewing in in uh, Bonner, and you know that's arguably one of the most creative public-private partnerships that I've heard of in the nation. Um, Tim O'Leary out at Kettle House was willing to allow us to put that array on the rooftop. Our members subscribed to those panels just like the rest of them um, in Lolo and Frenchtown. And on top of that, um, Tim offers um, participants in that program uh, a, a free beer a day. And how cool is that? Whether it's a, a beer or a loaf of bread, these partnerships with our members to allow for a, a project like that is, is quite unprecedented in the country and, and uh, um, shows that responsiveness of our board to react to our members' wants and needs. And, and uh, I think those are some great examples. Those are great examples. Let's, um, you know, I mentioned this briefly earlier, but let's kind of get back to the theme 
of this year's edition of Co-op Month, and that is diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, let's first talk about how we, how you all kind of, as leaders of organizations, think about those values and virtues uh, in how you run your organizations. Jack, let's let's start with you. We um, we take diversity, equity, and inclusion pretty seriously, and have for a long time. Uh, we've tried to bake these themes into sort of core organizational values, and our values are built around cooperative ownership, inclusion, empowerment of people, and and delivering impact with our with our resources. Um, and we, you know, we we recognize actually that our own industry, the banking industry, has been complicit historically in institutionalized racism through redlining, um, and that you can look at the numbers in the industry as a whole, um, while half of the entry-level workers are, are women, less than 20% of C-suite uh, workers in financial services are, are women. Uh, so we, we've got a lot of work to do. And that's not true just of the entire industry, but it's true of, of, of our organization as well. We certainly, we certainly haven't answered all of these, um, all of these questions. And it's a, it's a long road and not a, a road that we've got to the end of. Um, we do have a formal DEI plan, touches on the normal stuff, workforce representation, internal practices, culture, developing coworkers, connecting with uh, community organizations that are doing great work in this space. And there I'll just touch on a couple of good examples. Um, you mentioned sea change earlier. We're working really hard in our own organization and in, in conjunction with the University of Montana to identify and help provide some mentorship space and resources for great female leadership. Um, and um, we've been working very, very hard uh, across a number of years with the refugee community, uh, big supporters of soft landing, mm -hmm. IRC, um, our branch managers are trained in financial uh, literacy for refugee community. Uh, they do a lot of educational work. We have translation services and branches. We've developed special products and services. Um, and have done an awful lot to help uh, integrate refugee families into the, into the communities. Just a couple of, of, of examples of how we try to put some of those moral commitments and, and values to, into practice. Thanks. How do you know that you're making progress? That's it's a great question. I don't actually think we're very good uh, at the metrics around DEI just yet. Um, we're, we're getting there. We're far better, I think, at conventional financial performance metrics and, and some overarching impact metrics around empowering people and protecting environment um, through lowering carbon footprints and, and all of that. But we're honestly, we're just barely getting um, good at measuring like representation within our workforce versus the communities and memberships we serve, uh, participation and decision-making, um, and whether the, those teams of people are really as diverse as they should be, and we're including the right voices. Uh, we're, we're honestly um, and transparently here. We're we're a little softer um, in those areas, and haven't yet developed great metrics to to track that progress. Having said that, there are places we do it. You could go, for example, to the website and pull down documentation on uh, compensation metrics, and you could you could take a good hard look at um, how women and men in similar jobs get paid and whether uh, there's equity there or not. So there are some metrics, but I think DEI writ large, 
we've got a long way to go to get really good at measuring progress. Well, I, I mean, I think you're probably as close to the cutting edge as, as many are. And so, you know, instant, you're sort of across our, our country, across the society, we need to, we need to make progress for sure. Jason, how, how do these things come to life uh, over at Blackfoot? Yeah, I, uh, you know, a lot of the same ways that, that Jack articulated, at least when I think about inside the, the building here at Blackfoot among our 180 employees. But, um, you know, a little different tack on that, on that or a little different approach in responding to that question. There's this notion that has, that has really come up in the broadband in- industry over the last, um, the last year or so, really, this idea of digital equality. I think a lot of people are familiar with the phrase digital divide Mm -hmm. um, and understanding, well, well, what does that mean? There's the haves and the have-nots, but nobody really knew or can understand where the digital divide was because in urban areas, you could have really good internet access, but you could run into an affordability issue, for example. Um, And out in rural areas, um, you you could have uh, people that could afford it, but not necessarily have the facilities in place. So, from a business standpoint and, and kind of a policy standpoint, this notion of digital equity um, has us thinking about uh, you know implementing policies and procedures. And when we're looking at um, building out our network to reach more people that we think about it from an inclusion standpoint, you know, um, p- part of Blackfoot service territory, uh, is up on the, uh, the Flathead in the Indian reservation and, um, up there right now, we're actually, uh, in the middle of investing millions of dollars of fiber optic network up there. And not because uh, they're without service today, but it's just part of a larger capital uh, 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 investment project that we have in place. But it makes sense. It's definitely um, uh, uh, in our minds, too, a conscious decision to make sure that all portions of Montana, at least where we serve, whether uh, you're on tribally owned lands, whether you're in uh, more of the the populated areas, whether you uh, are a a high income earner or whether you're a low income earner, that you have the same opportunity to access the Internet. Uh, to sort of set the the bar and the groundwork to make sure you've got access to to everything that uh, that the digital world can can deliver. Yeah, I mean that digital inequity issue became super salient for me as as a professor at the university when we switched to remote instruction. And it's you know once we're I'm sort of my class this fall is also remote and just seeing the 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 barriers to access that exist for for many students some being in a rural community with 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 less infrastructure and some in our own um you know in, in their own apartment here in missoula when when they've got five roommates all hitting the wi-fi at the same time so those those issues of access are real and can manifest um along some of the traditional dimensions of diversity that we think about but in other in other ways as well uh, Mark, I would assume you know electricity has some some similar dimensions, um, but in terms of how you run your organization, how how do diversity, equity, and inclusion? Uh, how do you think about these things? Well, when I think of of DEI, you know, I think electric co-ops and co-ops in general, um, hopefully based upon our business model, have symbolized the precepts, you know, of inclusion and equal representation. But but in practice, that's not always the case, right? Mm-hmm. Here at the co-op, we recognize that, you know, culture, 
Um, our culture determines results, and DEI is a big part of that. Um, I hope we and, and we strive to create this environment where uh, differences drive innovation. But that isn't just within our workforce, right? It's within our boardroom too, making sure that um, our members um, are in tune with with the election process and they feel engaged and they feel included in that process when it comes to, um, you know, stepping up and being ready to serve if a board seat would, would, uh, come open in their district. And, uh, our board has had discussions about that. And, and so I think that's really important that, uh, um, people stay informed, people stay engaged and are ready to serve when that time comes, no matter, um, what their background. So beyond that, though, on a national level, I, I did want to speak to that. You know, I think co-ops have taken a big step. I'm on um, the National Resolutions Committee for the roughly 900 co-ops across the nation. And and DEI has has um, become front and center in, in part of our resolutions to, to say that we need to ensure that co-ops in every corner of the nation are are elevating this to to the status it deserves, and that our national association is providing those tools. and And you mentioned tools to uh, to measure our success or measure our, our our position with regard to to these issues. and And hopefully, our our national organization can help us, um, you know, provide us with those tools to to uh, to do that. So. That's great to hear that there's sort of co- coordination and support uh, at a national level. Um, you know, as, as we kind of go through this and, and learn more about you, the three of you as leaders and your organizations, I mean, you work for organizations that, you know, are, are sort of renowned and respected for investing in our community in productive and meaningful ways that make differences in the community and in individuals within the community. Um, you know, with that comes, uh, you know, the more you do stuff, the more you get asked to do stuff. The curse of confidence and, and grace is, is, is probably alive and well. Jack, I mean, you must get asked to do so many things and give money to so many different things. How, how do you kind of make choices about where you can give and where you can't and where you can allocate efforts and where you can't? Good question. Um, We do get asked a lot. Uh, We are able to reach an awful lot of of, of pockets of need, but do have to say no from time to time. Um, And I think when making those kinds of decisions, um, we try to think very carefully, first and foremost, about financial constraints, what, what, what can we afford to do, what is in the best interest of our owner members. Um, we think very carefully about our core organizational values and the types of impacts that we have agreed we want to make with our balance sheet, uh, our coworkers, and other resources that we have. Um, and um, we try to get the right people into those conversations. Um, most often that is a group of co-workers hopefully with the right sort of makeup uh, representation to understand the issues that are at play sometimes with the involvement of a board of directors and sometimes even with the involvement of some membership you you, you pointed to philanthropy 
Um, we have committed to about 5% of our net income each year uh, going to um, local uh, philanthropic requests. Um, and, and, and these days that's in the neighborhood of $300,000. We're not a, a huge philanthropist, but that's pretty significant giving for a financial institution of our size. So, so it's really those things, alignment with values, uh, membership interest, get the right people uh, into the, at the table and into the conversation to make good decisions. So Mark, you mentioned um, you provide your services at cost. So that might constrain the sort of financial resources that your organization has to, to, to engage in philanthropy. But, but how are you thinking about making choices for you know, efforts in the community to support or efforts that are maybe outside your lane? So, you know, I would, I would echo what has been said already in, in regards to education, um, but maybe I'll address this, this um, resource constraint um, point that you just brought up. Mm-hmm. We are, as I mentioned, we operate at cost and we return um, the um, excess in the form of patronage capital or capital credits, we call them. Um, we use those funds for a period of time and then return them to our members. Um, but some of those go unclaimed each year. And those Montana state law allows us to use that for educational purposes. So that is one tool that we have. Uh, we have given $700,000 roughly over the last decade to educational purposes here in the community. Um, but beyond that, in the next couple of months, we are going to be launching what's called Operation Roundup. You've, you, you've heard of the concept, round your bill up to the nearest dollar. Um, that would mm-hmm. go into a fund for, um, you know, funding good causes for nonprofits around the areas that we serve. So we're excited about that. You know, we, we historically, we help many, you know, nonprofits in the, in the communities we serve. This will just be another tool in the tool chest to uh, make a difference, make an impact in the communities we serve. Fantastic. And so, you know, as we kind of close out our time here, gentlemen, um, I just want to ask you each about your view of, of Missoula and our future here. I mean, we're, we're catching it at an interesting time where we're, we're, you know, in, in the midst of, of COVID. Um, I don't know if we're closer to the end or closer to the beginning. It's hard to tell. Um, I, I oscillate on my view of that from day to day. Uh, how are you kind of viewing your role in, in our community during this time when, when our, when, when a lot of our infrastructure is being stressed, our relationships are being stressed, our people are under stresses that, that we couldn't have possibly prepared for. Um, yeah. How, how are you kind of viewing you, you, yourselves as leaders and your organizations as leaders in the, in the community? Maybe, maybe start with you, Jack. That's a great question. I mean, I got super lucky uh, landing in Missoula about seven years ago um, for the job. Didn't know the community all that well. I could read a map and a balance sheet. So I knew it was a pretty cool place and a pretty great opportunity, but I was just, blown away by what a special place and how chock full of good, smart people um, this place is with really strong commitments to public resources, educational resources, um, and, and, and out-of-door opportunities. But you're right, there's some stress. Um, COVID's one thing. Um, I, 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 it's painful. It's 
it's really hurt a lot of people, a lot of businesses. Um, it's been a very sad and difficult period of time. I do believe we'll come out the other side. I won't project when. I don't know. Uh, but Missoula will will be strong at the back end of this. I'm trying as a local leader of a, of a good-sized organization to put a lot of time right now into thinking about affordable housing challenges, mm-hmm. um, which are a, a huge issue for this community and the kind of place it becomes over the course of time for our members, for our coworkers, uh, and for being an inclusive um, place to live, work, raise a family. We, we face some real challenges there. Um, and also on this question of inclusion, uh, you know, we like to think this is a progressive welcoming place, but I think we've all heard of and can point to some incidents and anecdotes that are really disconcerting with respect to, to racism and exclusivity. And um, I'm trying to put a lot of time, thought, work with our organization and the membership into making sure that we are a very welcoming and inclusive place to live, work, raise a family. Thank you for that work, Jack. Jason, your thoughts. Yeah, it's interesting. I moved to Missoula uh, 20 years ago from Seattle um, to, to go to law school, and not knowing a single soul. But there was something about this community that attracted me to it, and it's you know it's the unique Missoulaness. You know, there's something about this place, right? And um, you know, as I've spent my time here, and now as as I've worked to be a business leader. I, I want to do as much as I can, whether it's um, subtle things or even uh, more, more direct things to help preserve those unique qualities that that make Missoula, Missoula. Um, I think Jack did hit on a few of them. Uh, affordable housing is a big one. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm proud to say that as an employer here at Blackfoot, I, I'm able to offer some really good paying jobs, you know, just... Uh, on an average basis, I think our average salary among our 180 employees is about seventy thousand dollars a year. So, in it, but what's crazy to think about is that an income like that is still difficult to afford, uh, you know, family to afford a house in in Missoula. Um, but but then there's what what other things can we be doing uh, through, through coalitions or through things like the Missoula Economic Partnership? to strike that right balance to ensure that um, we keep Missoula uh, the place that that, uh, that I fell in love with 20 years ago when I first moved here. Well said, Mark, how do you, how do you think about this? Well, so like these guys, you know, I'm, I moved to Missoula in 2009 without having spent a lot of time here, um, va- vacationed here a couple times and, and realized that it's a place that uh, I thought I wanted to live and, and uh, looking back, I can't think of a place I would rather be. And I can't think of an organization that I would rather lead than this one. Um, COVID has taken a toll in terms of, um, you know, our organization as an essential service. I have employees that haven't been in the same uh, meeting room uh, since March. And, uh, you know, there's, there's some fatigue that goes along with that. And I'm sure there is in every organization. But... Um, as an essential service, we must maintain a, a healthy workforce. I know of a co-op in in other another part of Montana that was down to two employees that weren't quarantining. That's just not acceptable, and uh, um, I just can't be more proud of the of the work these guys do every day. And and uh, you know, looking forward um, in our industry specifically, yes, we have challenges. Um, 
within the community in terms of uh, cost of housing and workforce development. But um, regarding climate change, um, wildfire mitigation, that is a huge concern of mine as we go, move forward. I'm proud that, that MEC has developed the first wildfire mitigation plan in the state of Montana. It's going to be something that is required, I think, um, because things have changed. Our fire season is getting longer and more intense, and uh, it impacts every one of us um, when, our, when the skies are filled with smoke. And my goal is to ensure that that is not power line sparked as we move forward. So that's just one of the things that uh, um, keep me up at night. So. Indeed, Mark, thank you. You used the word proud there twice in your answer. And I must say that, that I am proud to, to live in a place where you know, we've got leaders like the three of you um, committed to the place and the people in the place. Jack Lawson, Jason Williams, Mark Hayden, thanks so much for all you do um, as leaders, as members of the community. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming by the podcast. It's hard to get three leaders of, of busy organizations together. So the stars align and we pulled it off. Thanks very much. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Susan. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. A New Angle is underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot with support from the University of Montana College of Business and Consolidated Electrical Distributors. AJ Williams is our producer. Jeff Amet, John Wicks, and VTO made our music. And Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. If you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. If you like what you heard, tell your friends about us. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.